Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're looking at the power of storytelling and what that can mean for a Formula One driver fighting for his drive or for you in a job interview, building a relationship or just in the trials and tribulations of everyday life. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won. So it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast with me, Mark Priestley. I need to first apologise for not being here last week, not producing an episode. I simply ran out of days, I was on holiday, didn't get back until quite late and there weren't enough hours left to do it, so sorry about that. But thank you to every single one of you who are joining me today for this episode. I appreciate you all, wherever it is you are in the world and however it is you're listening, thank you very, very much. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that for me has cropped up in a number of ways quite recently, very publicly, around the F1 driver market. There are a number of issues that have cropped up at various teams. I'm obviously thinking about the Daniel Ricciardo situation. I'm talking about Oscar Piastri, Fernando Alonso, and whatever other movements may well occur off the back of those recent announcements that surprised a number of people, not, uh, not least the teams involved in some cases, and I've been thinking about those situations that each of those drivers are currently facing, um, the teams that employ those drivers, the situations they're in, how those relationships have clearly been changing in recent times, probably much longer, over a much longer period than we are aware of, because much of this happens behind the scenes. But we've got situations where drivers are looking to convince teams of their value, Teams are trying to do the same for drivers, to encourage them to either stay, to come and join their teams. Some teams, in the case of McLaren and Daniel Ricciardo, that relationship looks like it's coming to an end and they now need to find a solution to end their relationship in the most elegant way possible. These complex and difficult situations that are all bubbling away in the background of Formula One, I find fascinating. But as I thought about them more and more, of course, as I always do, I try to think in the way of applying those situations and especially the lessons that can be learned from those situations to the kind of situations that we face in our daily lives. None of us are Formula One drivers. There may well be Formula One drivers amongst you, I don't know. But none of us, in the most part, are dealing with that specific situation. But every single one of us has to deal with relationships and relationship issues and this idea of trying to convince somebody of something, convince somebody of your value or of your worth, either to them or to a company. We have all manner of complex situations bubbling away in our lives in very much the same way as we're seeing play out now in the very public world of Formula One. And as that situation develops, as these stories became more and more public, I found more and more that I could delve into and pick out that we can perhaps learn from. So that's where I want to go with this. And I want to start perhaps with that whole issue that I just talked about there, the, the one that's resulted in Daniel Ricciardo facing a very difficult situation, knowing that his team don't really want him there. 
uh, for next season, even though he has a contract. He now is faced with a situation where he's got to try and find somewhere else to continue his career, if that's what he wants to do. And in all of those scenarios, there are complicated and sometimes quite difficult conversations to be had. And this dynamic of trying to sell yourself as a racing driver, but as I say, the same applies to any of us, selling yourself to somebody or to a business or company, to an employer, selling an idea that you have to somebody. These things happen all throughout our lives, in our jobs, in our family situations, amongst friend groups, in social situations as well. And so when we start to think about what Daniel Ricciardo is facing at the moment, in the very basic and simple terms, he's got an employer that effectively doesn't want him to remain there, even though he has a contract. Now, there's a very simple or seemingly very simple solution to that. The team could offer Daniel Ricciardo a huge sum of money to effectively walk away from his contract. And it may be that Daniel Ricciardo is very happy with that. That huge sum of money may well be enough for him to walk away with his head held high, potentially go and get another job as well. But there's a more complicated scenario behind that, isn't there? Because... He's now got to finish a season, half of this season remaining, more or less. He's still got to finish this season driving for a team that he knows doesn't want him there. And of course, you can go back and look at results and you can look at the, the reason that relationship has got to the point that it's at today. Daniel Ricciardo's results haven't been good enough. The team's results haven't really been as good as anybody hoped or expected they would be. But on the other side of that same team's garage, Lando Norris has been able to deliver reasonably consistent results, probably as good as the car was capable of doing in many cases. Daniel Ricciardo hasn't been able to match that. And that's where the problem lies. If you're Daniel Ricciardo, before things bubble up to a point that we've seen in recent weeks where there's now a very obvious situation that the team wants to move on with a new driver, Oscar Piastri. Before that, though, Daniel Ricciardo, and this is where we can apply this to our lives, when an employer or somebody in our lives starts to lose faith in what we can do, in what value we bring to our relationship, what do we do? We have two choices, really. We can try and convince that person that actually we do bring value. There is something that we can offer, whether it's our company or our employer. We do have something that we can bring to the table, but we just need to convince them because at the moment they don't see it. So we can go down that route where we can try and change somebody's mind about what they think of us, how they perceive us, what value we can offer. And of course, there are a number of ways in which we can do that through our behaviours and our actions, but also we can create this story. We can tell somebody how things might be different, give them reasons why things may have worked out the way they have up until this point. Perhaps Daniel Ricciardo has been doing some of that in the background. But the other side of that, the other option that we tend to have in that situation is to say, well, okay, the other side of this relationship no longer wants to be part of it. And if they're not 100% committed, like I am, if they don't feel the same way, then maybe actually the best thing is not to try and change their mind. Maybe we've gone beyond that point. Maybe now my best option is to start thinking about moving on myself looking for a new team, looking for a new employer, perhaps moving on and and exploring other relationships in a romantic sense. So what I wanted to explore in a little more depth in today's episode are the practical things that we can do 
when we're faced with those two options. And I'm very much simplifying this. There are so many nuanced elements to all of these relationships, all of these decisions. And when I refer back to the Daniel Ricciardo situation, I'm doing that in a very generic sense. I don't know enough about the specifics of the way he feels, the way the team feels. I have an understanding from talking to a number of my former colleagues, team members at McLaren, of the rough situation, but I don't know what Daniel Ricciardo thinks. I don't know what the team specifically are thinking right now. It's a constantly moving thing. So when I refer back to Daniel Ricciardo's situation as an example, it really is a very generic version of that. But let's look at the first of those two potential options, the idea of trying to change somebody's mind about you, about the way they think of you convincing somebody to buy into your way of thinking. And if you think about that in general terms, we all have to do that all of the time, don't we? Lots of elements of what we do in business and in life revolve around exactly that. We have to try and convince somebody that we've never met to give us a job in a job interview, to convince them that we are the right person. We're the person they've been looking for and now they've found them even though they know almost nothing about us. And our job in that moment as an interviewee is to convince the interviewer that we have value, that we can bring value to their organisation. We do the same in romantic relationships. When we meet somebody for the first time, when we start dating somebody, we're trying to give a portrayal of ourselves that the other party will see some value in, that we'll see some attraction to. It's a sales pitch, effectively, that we're giving of ourselves. And if you think about business, that is exactly that. That's sales. Any business that sells anything to anybody has to try and convince the potential buyers that what we're selling, whether it's a service or a product, whether it's people, what we can offer has value. And we have to try and find ways through communication and behaviours, through storytelling, to try and do exactly that, to change somebody's mind or to create an image in somebody's mind that they see the value in, that they buy into. We want to try and align their thinking with ours. We think we've got this great product. We want you to also think it's a great product. So here's the story behind it. Here are the stats. Here are the numbers. This is what it can do for you. We have to frame it in a way that the other person immediately buys into. If we go back to this theoretical Daniel Ricciardo situation, in the early part of his tenure at McLaren, of course, he came in with a big bang, with high expectations. He was one of the class drivers of the field in Formula One. People were excited. I was excited. People around McLaren, the people working at McLaren, McLaren fans were excited to see Daniel Ricciardo come to this team that was heading back towards the front, alongside a driver we already knew had great potential in Lando Norris. I think most people around Formula One were excited to see that. And so expectation was high. I'm sure that Daniel Ricciardo's own expectations were equally high. He will have known that he's been paid big bucks. There's a big fanfare around his arrival. He has a reputation as being one of the best drivers on the grid. And he now has to deliver on that. He has to live up to that name. He will have set very high goals and targets for himself when he arrived at McLaren. And yet, over the early part of that time, it just didn't work out. He couldn't yet get to grips with that McLaren car. He didn't quite find ways to match his driving style to the unique characteristics 
of the McLaren, which were clearly very different to the cars that he'd driven previously. And he had similar experiences at Renault, didn't he, where he came in and initially he struggled to some extent, but over time he managed to work through those problems. And by the time he left the team at Renault, he was actually driving really well. He had reinstated that reputation as a top tier driver. So in the beginning at McLaren, when things didn't immediately go that smoothly, no one was particularly worried. I'm sure Daniel Ricciardo wasn't particularly worried because he'd been through this before. He's just got to start digging deep into the data. He's got to spend some time in the simulator working with his engineers. The team will have felt exactly the same, I'm sure, because they had seen what had happened at Renault. Yes, they would have loved things to be perfect right from day one, but if they're not, well, that's fine. We know how good he is. We know how good our car can be. We've just got to find a way of amalgamating the two, getting them working well together. But we can all do that. And then over time, it still hasn't worked out. And I can only speculate and imagine the conversations, as well as the thought processes that must have been happening in the background, the longer that period of underperforming went on. And especially as Daniel Ricciardo's teammate, the youngster in Lando, Lando Norris, began to get better and better and better. And he did manage to get the best out of that McLaren car on many occasions. And particularly if we look at this year, where we had the big reset off the back of 2021, we're coming in with brand new cars, there's a new opportunity. This car is clearly going to have different characteristics. It's going to be a different car. Maybe this is the opportunity that Daniel needs. The team and Daniel are having a reset. Him, together with a brand new car, well, this is where we start smashing it. But it didn't work out that way. And I can only imagine how that must have started to affect Daniel Ricciardo's self-confidence. Because all of a sudden, this young kid in Lando Norris is now becoming very quickly the star at McLaren, even a star of Formula One. And yet Daniel's constantly struggling. He must have started to question his own ability at times. That's surely inevitable. We all face those moments. Even a great Formula One driver at some time will start to lose confidence, will start to question their own ability. We never see that side of things because professional sportsmen and women tend to only try and bring their A-game when they're being interviewed, when they're in the public eye. They don't want to show vulnerabilities. So they'll always try and give off this air of confidence. But internally, it's often a completely different story. And I'm sure we can all relate to that. How many times have we done exactly the same thing where we may have started a brand new job and be struggling? It might be a big job. And our friends and our families and our former colleagues at the old company we worked with ask us how it's going. And actually, the reality is it might not be going that well, but we always give this answer of, yeah, it's great. Yeah, really good. You know, we're still finding our feet, but I think this is going to be, it's going to be great. I'm really excited. But on the inside, we might be thinking, blimey, I think I might have taken a, a leap too far. I'm not sure if I've bitten off more than I can chew here, because at the moment, I feel out of my depth. People are asking me questions I don't know the answers to. And you start having this internal confidence crisis. We've all been there, I have no doubt. And a Formula One driver is absolutely no different. They are just another human being that has the same vulnerabilities, the same highs and lows in their everyday lives, in their professional lives. And when I think about Daniel Ricciardo, it must be almost inevitable that he's going, or at least has gone through, some of those kind of situations. And of course, on the other side of that same coin, his team, McLaren, will also have a very changing view 
of what Daniel Ricciardo is able to deliver for them. Their confidence in their man will clearly have been waning over time as well, because whilst the expectation when they signed him was sky high on both sides, the actual real-world performance has come nowhere near to meeting those expectations. So the way that that dynamic begins to unfold when these problems start emerging and they emerge consistently and they haven't necessarily found a quick and easy fix is that both sides, both parties will typically knuckle down and try to find a solution. They'll go back to the drawing board. They'll work together. They will sift through data, spend time in the simulator. They will start pouring over data from the other side of the garage, looking at ways they could even tweak the car, maybe even redesign elements of the car to try and help their driver, to try and extract the performance they know is there from their driver. But even those kind of things just didn't produce the levels of performance that everybody needed to come from Daniel Ricciardo. And eventually, there would have had to have been some quite difficult conversations where maybe the team will have pulled Daniel into the office. Maybe Zach Brown, together with the race engineers, might have pulled them all together and had a difficult, complicated chat about how we recover this situation. How do we get this whole thing working? And clearly no one just simply has the answers to that because that's what they've been trying to do. So in that situation, Daniel Ricciardo has to start trying to convince the team at some point that they still have value to extract from him. That he can still bring something to this party. He doesn't want to be sat there earning this big money, not delivering. He doesn't want that anyway, but he certainly doesn't want that with a future ahead of him of still perhaps a year and a half to go on that current contract without being able to show any signs of the improvement that they so desperately need. So a driver in that kind of situation effectively needs to put together a sort of sales pitch of themselves to convince the team that they are the right person for the job. They're the right person to remain in this role. The team needs to get behind them, give them some more time. This is the same for any young driver trying to convince their team to give them a driver extension for the following year. It would have been the same for Daniel Ricciardo struggling in his McLaren. And it's the same for anybody who's ever been in a vaguely similar situation out in the real world, in work or in life. We often have to sell ourselves to somebody else, to sell the idea of ourselves, a better idea than they might have in their head at this point. And there are a number of ways that we can go about doing that. Of course, I would imagine that somebody like Daniel Ricciardo would have sat down in that meeting and they would have said, look, I'm getting there. I'm starting to unlock little tiny things. I'm starting to feel a little bit more comfortable week by week. The results may not show it just yet, but these tiny little incremental improvements I'm making, I know are making a difference. You can say those kind of things. You can say that, give me another three or four races. I'm pretty sure that I can be up alongside Lando Norris's times. I can be qualifying in the same kind of areas as him. And you can say that quite convincingly. You can put passion behind how you say it. The the words that you choose very carefully can be selected to be as convincing as possible. The way you say it, your body language, the the, the motions you go through. Communication is multi-layered. And you can use many of those layers to get this message across in verbal terms, using your things like body language, your actions, your intonation, your passion to back up those words. 
But telling somebody that you're going to be better than you've done right now often isn't the most convincing way to do it. How many of us, even as children, will have been told off by our parents, will have been told off at school, and our response is, well, I won't do it again. I'm really sorry, I've learnt my lesson, I'm going to make sure that next time I'm better, next time I am listening in class. And then I'm sure for many of us, we've probably got caught doing the same thing again, daydreaming, looking out the window, answering your parents back, even though the last time you got caught, you said you wouldn't do it again. It wasn't a very convincing sales pitch, and it probably, over time, when it keeps happening, doesn't change the mind of the person you're trying to convince. So just saying something, telling somebody that you're going to do things differently, your performance is going to be improved, you're going to start delivering upon expectation. These things can have some impact in the beginning. If there's a mutual trust, if the two parties want this situation to work, if they desperately want it to get better, in the beginning of the McLaren-Daniel Ricciardo relationship, that would have been exactly what would have happened. Both parties were so behind this situation, wanting it to work, convinced it was going to work, that when it didn't work, well, they just told each other that, don't worry, guys, keep your head up, we'll just knuckle down and work a bit harder, we'll get through this, we'll get out the other side, we will get back to where we want to be. That's how it begins. But then over time, when a Daniel Ricciardo or a racing driver in general has been promising better results but then they can't deliver on them. It never happens. We just continue to get the same level of underperformance. The trust in the words that that person has been saying, that initial sales pitch of themselves through verbal communication, telling somebody, I'm going to be better, people start to lose faith in that. It no longer has the same impact because you've said it a few times already, and yet you haven't actually delivered on your promise. You haven't done what you said you could do for us. So now what happens is if you want to convince somebody, if you want to elevate your sales pitch to a next level, if you need to convince somebody that you still have something to offer them, even though results so far may not have shown that, even though behaviours may have painted a different picture, we might need a different form of communication to try and convince those people. We need to step it up a level. And if we think about this in our real world scenarios, in our daily lives, if we do work in some kind of sales environment, selling things is the same thing. We can put on our advert for a product, on the packaging of our products, we can say, this product will do this for you. This will do a certain thing. It will do what it says on the tin. And to some level, people will buy into that. If they trust the brand, they're immediately going to say, okay, well, it says it's going to do this. I completely trust that this product is going to do this, so I'll buy it. But over time, we might start to lose confidence in that thing. We might be reaching out to customers that don't have a trust in our brand because they've never had an interaction with us before. It might take another level to convince somebody to buy our product than just telling them that it's a great product. So then you might step it up. Then your advertising campaign might start to involve things like statistics, numbers, data, data that people on some level can't argue against because the data's there. It's proof to many people that this product is going to do what it says. Look, here's the data to back it up. That's another level of being able to convince somebody that what you're saying is the truth because there's some evidence here. There's data to back it up. 
And the same kind of thing can happen in conversations around ourselves. When we formulate our CVs, when we're applying for jobs or if we're going for job interviews, we present a series of facts and figures of bits of information about our past working life and about ourselves to the people that potentially could become our employers. And to some extent, we can manipulate those facts and figures and pieces of information to suit either the person that we're talking to, the job we're going for, or just to try and make us appear better than if we laid out every single statistic or every single piece of information we might otherwise do. For example, you might put in one of your previous jobs that you were one of the top three executives in the country in your particular company. Now, that's a pretty impressive claim. You were top three in the entire country for your business. That's huge. It's huge if your business is a massive one that spans hundreds of offices, has thousands of people. If you're top three out of that, that's incredibly impressive. But you could actually be in a company that only has one office, or it might have two offices. It might have an office up north and an office down south, and each one of those offices might only have three people in. And within those six people that make up the company, maybe you were within the top three. But actually, it just means that you're in the top half of that organisation. But that sounds way less impressive than you saying, I was top three in the country within our business. Now, you don't have to go in and clarify that on your CV. And so for most people, you wouldn't. You'd put the statistic, you'd put the piece of data that makes you look most impressive. And that CV then, as somebody's glancing over it, as they're scanning through it, they're highly unlikely to come back and pick you up and ask you the specifics around that role. But they are much more likely to raise an eyebrow when they see it, to become more impressed, to get a better impression of you from this piece of paper that's in front of them that they are scanning through in amongst probably many other pieces of paper from other candidates. Yours now looks a little bit more impressive. And you haven't lied. You haven't told anything that's untrue. You just twisted the statistics. You framed them in a way to suit your argument, to make your argument more convincing. And we all do this all the time. Many of us subconsciously We don't think too much about it. We do it every single day when we meet people, when we're talking about ourselves and our accomplishments. We often inflate certain elements and deflate other elements that we don't think will work in this particular situation. And on another day, meeting another person in a different walk of life or a different situation in life, we may well bring that other element to the fore and push the one that we inflated last time further down the order. We tweak the things that we say about ourselves to suit the situation that we're in. And so we should. That's exactly the way to sell things, to sell ourselves, to bring the kinds of information that your potential customers, that the person on the other end of this communication is going to benefit most from seeing. On a really basic level, Daniel Ricciardo could try to convince somebody, perhaps somebody outside of Formula One, of his value by presenting the statistics around his race wins and comparing those to his teammate, Lando Norris. Lando Norris never won a race. Daniel Ricciardo, a multiple race winner. That statistic on its own makes Daniel Ricciardo look way more impressive. Pole positions, same thing. It swung very heavily in favour of Daniel Ricciardo and those statistics speak volumes to somebody who doesn't fully understand the nuances of Formula One. 
But if you take the statistics of this year, well, it's a completely different picture. So we would show the type of statistic, the type of information that really suits the situation that we're in. And if we're trying to convince somebody, and this is exactly what sales is, you show people the first of all, the thing that seems most impressive, but also the thing that the other person wants to hear, what they want to see, the kind of numbers that they will be impressed by. So if you're trying to convince somebody, if you're trying to sell to somebody, the first thing is know your strengths and weaknesses. Have that information to hand. Have some statistics that you can draw from. But also know your audience. Know who you're selling to. What is it that's going to impress them over and above somebody else who could be impressed by something completely different? And in that situation, the cleverest salespeople pick out the information that they're going to present that is most valuable to the person on the other end of that presentation. It may not be the same information that might work for somebody else, for a different audience. Knowing your audience when you're trying to convince somebody, you're trying to change somebody's mind, is crucial. My young son recently has been asking more and more about joining the the various social media apps. He's at the moment not been allowed social media. He's got a phone, but he's not allowed social media. And this is a conversation that every now and again, he asks again, and the answer has always been no. And he came to me recently and he said, look, dad, can I please get onto social media? You know, all of my mates are using it. I'm one of the last ones in my class that's not allowed it. Can I please have it? Can I please let me sign up? He said, can you speak to mum? I said, look, mum's view on this is the same as mine. We just want to fully understand the implications. We want to do a bit more research about these various platforms, what their implications are, what their age limits are, all of these kind of things we want to know more about before we make any decisions. I said, just give us a little bit of time to, to do this research, to understand more about it, because we're just, we're just worried about you. We just want to make sure that we're making the right decision here. And he went away and he sort of said, OK, a bit frustrated, but he went away. But he then came back later. And what he'd done is he'd put together a sort of little semi-presentation of numbers to back up his argument, to try and convince us that it was the right decision to allow him to have social media. He'd presented the number of people in his friend group that were already using these things to communicate as a chat tool. The numbers were there. He showed a list of names of people who were on it. He also had a list of people that weren't on it, which was far smaller. It was a pretty convincing argument. He was one of the very few, the minority in his class or in his group that weren't allowed to have it. He gave us presentations on the amount of time that he currently spends on his phone. He agreed to set limits to those, the periods of time that he's allowed to, he would be allowed to spend on those things. He said, look, if you let me have it, I will set, look, here's how you do it. I can show you how you do it in my phone. I can set a limit for the amount of use I can have that app for each particular day. So if you want to set it to an hour, he said, I can do that. I'm happy to do all those things. So he'd put this little presentation together of data and information to help back up his argument. And on the one hand, I was really quite impressed that he'd gone down that route because he'd looked at his audience, which was his mum and his dad. He knew that we needed some information, that we hadn't yet had time to do research and have a full understanding of, of what, these, what all of these social media apps were like, of who was using them, of why they were using them. And so he put that information together and he presented it to us. Now, it may well be that of that little group of list of names that he sent me, when he showed me that there's a group of 15 people 
10 of them already have it and he's one of the five that doesn't, it may actually be that the, the sample size is way bigger than that. Because actually there could be a group of 30 people and it might just be that there's only that 10 that have it out of 30. But he didn't do that. He only showed me the 10 that have it and the five that don't from his little circle of friends. That's a clever way of presenting statistics in a way that will be more convincing than if he'd listed his entire class of 30 people and showed me that 10 of them are allowed to have the Snapchat or instant messaging on, on social media. So I was impressed with the way that he'd used numbers and statistics and data to try and convince us of his argument. And I had to give him some credit for that. We haven't yet made a decision. We're still looking into it. But, but I was impressed with his ingenuity that he'd gone down that route. And it really is one of the most simple but effective ways to try and convince somebody of your argument. Presenting evidence to back up the words, to back up your opinion, using data and statistics, things that are very difficult to argue with, even if they may not present the entire picture. They might not present the whole story, but the way you present those statistics, those data elements, those pieces of information, that evidence is crucial. And so framing it in the right way is another really strong means of trying to convince somebody of your particular belief. It may well be that in the background at McLaren months ago, when the relationship was just starting to become more and more strained, Daniel Ricciardo was struggling for his own self-confidence, was having to sort of fight for his own value, to push his value towards the team. It may well be that he turned to something like this. Perhaps he was able to show statistics or numbers about how he was improving, even if it were only small amounts. Perhaps he could present something to the team to say, look, Here's the data. I'm on the right track here. I know it's not going fast enough. I know the improvements are not coming quickly enough, but just look at this graph where we're on the right trajectory here. The improvements, albeit small, are happening. And if we continue down this path, I firmly believe we will get to where we want to be. And if you can show numbers and data to back that up, it becomes a more convincing argument. It's something that the team, on one hand, can see the numbers, there's that evidence there, but they also show a commitment from Daniel Ricciardo's side that he's willing to go to those kind of lengths to convince them that he's the right man for the job. Clearly, he has passion, he has drive, he wants to be there. He's not just giving up. His performance is not coming from a lack of effort because look at the lengths that he's gone to, putting these numbers together, extracting this data, putting it into a presentation, showing us that we are heading in the right direction, albeit slower than we would have hoped. Finding and then using data and statistics, numbers, evidence in your argument also gives an idea of the work ethic that you're prepared to put in to convincing somebody. And if you're selling to somebody and they know you've gone to all of those lengths, you've gone to all of that trouble to show them what this product or service could offer them, what value it has for them, if you've gone to greater lengths and you're willing to put that effort in, it's an even more convincing argument. The person on the other end feels a little bit more at ease. This isn't something you've just thrown together because you don't really care. You have thought about it carefully. You've taken time over it. You've committed to trying to convince this person that it's the right thing for them. And that goes a long way in that convincement process. But on many occasions... Even those kind of techniques are just simply not enough. They simply don't work if the performances, and if we go back to our 
hypothetical Daniel Ricciardo situation here, if the performances on the racetrack are still not living up to that high expectation that everybody has, despite the words of encouragement, the words of promise that I'm going to get better, we're going in the right direction, despite the evidence that was presented to you to try and convince you that you can still continue to improve, if we don't see those results and time passes and we still don't see those results, it's going to be even harder to convince somebody of your argument. That argument becomes an incredibly difficult thing to sell in when people are seeing evidence of the opposite of what you're saying. You're saying that we can be the very best. We can deliver these great performances in a race car, yet we're not seeing it. Consistently, you're being outperformed by your teammate. We know what our car can do because the guy on the other side of the garage is doing it regularly. And yet you're not. You've told us you can do it. You've shown us evidence that we're heading towards that right direction. But we're still not seeing it on the racetrack when it matters. That's when confidence really starts to fall apart. That's when trust begins to dissolve because you've told them something and you haven't delivered upon it. You've effectively broken your promises. You've broken your trust or you weren't able to deliver on the promises that you made. Trust falls apart. Self-confidence falls apart. Confidence in each other falls apart. And that's when it becomes incredibly difficult. So there is another level of sales technique that the very best brands in the world use to sell their products and services, to build trust in their brands, to grow companies and businesses. People do it very effectively in the same way. Racing drivers, I have no doubt, can utilize the same techniques in trying to convince their teams. They will do that when trying to get a drive at a team, when trying to hold on to a drive at a team. And that technique centers around storytelling. Storytelling is one of the most powerful ways of convincing somebody of an opinion, of an idea, of a belief, convincing somebody to trust you, to buy into you, to buy your products or services. Storytelling is one of the most powerful sales and marketing techniques in the world. It always has been and it always will be because what storytelling does is it creates a picture, a visual picture in the minds of the person that's seeing this communication, that's being told the story. And in every case in life, when we see a picture, when we visualize something in our minds, we hold on to it for longer. We remember things. We can remember numbers when we create a story around those numbers, numbers that otherwise would be meaningless to us. But if we build a story, we'll remember them. I mentioned that in a couple of podcasts ago. Crucially, the other thing that storytelling does, and this is the thing that sets it apart by miles from those first two methods that I talked about, is that storytelling creates emotion. It evokes emotion. Numbers and statistics, they don't evoke emotion. They don't evoke an emotional response when you see even a really convincing set of statistics. It very rarely provokes any emotion in you. You might look at the statistics and you'll raise an eyebrow and you go, oh yeah, great, that looks really strong. I'll buy it. That looks really good. I'm going to employ this person. But it doesn't evoke any emotion around that argument. When we create a story, we can put all manner of emotions into it. We can build a picture with characters in it, with a beginning, a middle and an end, with jeopardy. We have the opportunity to take the person we're selling to along for the journey of that story. 
if we can do it well enough and they buy into the story and they get hooked on the story, we've got them because we can then play with their emotions. They become vulnerable. They let their guard down. They become way more susceptible to being convinced of an idea or convinced to buy something. And that is why the very best marketeers in the world use this technique to great effect when it comes to selling things when it comes to convincing people of a particular brand value, the strength of a brand, why a product is better than another product, because on this particular product, you're emotionally attached to it. You understand the story behind it. You know where it came from. You know what's gone into making it. You become attached to the characters that made it. And then you become emotionally attached. And then you feel a sense of responsibility to support those characters. And so you buy the product. It's why you're far more likely to secure a job after an interview when you've given up a lot of your story, not just listed the jobs on your CV and talked about where you worked and when you worked and how long you worked there, but who were you when you worked there? How has your story changed through your career? What have those different roles at different companies done to you? How have they changed you? What highs and lows did you go through? How do you come out of those? What were some moments of jeopardy that you faced and how did you overcome them? How have all of those moments in your story fed into this moment right now and the person that you are sat on the other side of a desk to an interviewer trying to convince them that you're the right person for this job? When you've told them a story and they now buy into that story, they feel like they know you. They know you way more than any of the other candidates because up until that point, all they know is a series of words, pieces of information, statistics and numbers that might have been on the CVs. Your interview technique should form part of this incredible story. And in the same way that you embellish certain elements of statistics, you embellish certain elements of a story. You bring out the elements that will suit your target audience. You bring out the elements of your story that suit the role that you're applying for, that can show some kind of value, that can give a little hint to the sort of person that you are. And if you've done your research and you know the kind of person they're looking for, you know a bit about the business, you know a bit about the guy sat on the other side of the table from you, you should know exactly which elements you need to bring out from your story. You can tailor your story completely differently between one job interview and another. And you can do that without telling any lies, without telling any untruths. You just highlight different elements to suit the situation that you're in. And it can be wonderfully convincing. There's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing immoral about this. This is life. But it just depends how somebody's using these techniques, why they're using these techniques. Of course, the same techniques can be used for illicit gain, for nefarious purposes. It can be used by people who have bad intentions that want to convince you of something. Scam artists are a perfect example of this. Hackers who try to portray this story that so many people buy into, and then because they've bought into it, because they've become emotionally attached to the story, because they let their guard down, they became vulnerable, they might hand over bank details, they might give up some personal information that otherwise they would never have done. So, of course, there are multiple reasons why it's a good thing to understand how and why these techniques work. Because on the obvious hand, you can use these techniques in your own world. You can use them in a situation like a job interview, trying to build relationships, whether it's work or personal. 
But equally, having an understanding of how the techniques work and why they work might just help to protect you when someone else is trying to use them on you. And that could be from scammers or hackers, but it could also be when a brand is trying to sell to you. Just having an understanding of what they're doing to try and convince you to buy their product, to click the button, to say yes to something that you might not be truly convinced of inside. If you've been sucked along with the story, knowing that's what they're doing might just help you to make a clearer decision. And so this idea of storytelling is hugely powerful and we can apply it in so many different ways because human beings are inherently, innately connected to each other. We want to be connected to other human beings. It's how we're made. We have thousands and thousands of years of evolution all centered around human connection. So when we hear a story that centers around human beings and human characters and the things that those characters have been up to, the kinds of highs and lows that we can relate to, that we're familiar with. If they're in that story, we can start to believe it. We can start to buy into it. We relate to the story. And when we relate to a story, we immediately connect to that story. And when we connect to the story, we're sucked in. And we start to want to follow on. We want to know the next part of the story. We can't tear ourselves away. And by the time they get to the end of the story, whatever threads have been weaved into that story, we are fully on board with in many cases. It's why old school shops might have an old school sign out the front in the high street, standing them apart from the neon lights or the big polished, glitzy, glassy, high gloss plastic signs of a more modern shop. And the old school shop that might be hand painted might say, established in 1843. It might say family-run business. The name of the company might be Smith & Sons. Each of those things immediately start to create part of the story. You know when you see that sign that it's a family business, something that generation has passed down to generation. There's an immediate trust that comes along with that. That's not just been sold to the highest bidder and now being run by a corporation. You can imagine people sat around the dinner table planning the next day in the shop, planning who's going to work in what shift, planning which products they're going to make or buy to sell to us. We buy into that. If it's been established since 1883, it's been around for a long, long time. And if it's been around that long, they must be doing things well. If it's called Smith & Sons, exactly the same thing applies. It's a family business. Family is a group of human beings that are connected to each other, and we immediately connect with that. Big brands take that to an even greater level. They will tell a story like that, but they'll tell the story of how the brand came to be. And if it's a powerful story, there's immediate trust in that brand. Coca-Cola is a good example of this. It's a huge corporation. They make a massive amount of money. They probably are a brand that just on the face of it, a lot of people wouldn't like because of that, because they make so much money. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people working away behind the scenes to churn out what effectively is a sugary drink that's bad for us. But of course, they don't market in that way. They market along the storyline of their history, that they are a well-established company, that way back when were a classic brand that was at the centre of every family dinner table. 
with these old school bottles that we could easily make differently today, but we still keep them. We still keep that shape because it harks back to the old days of Coca-Cola, when it was a much loved brand, way more than it is today. When the idea of it being a sugary drink that was going to rot our teeth and be generally bad for us wasn't so much of a concern to the consumer. Back then, it was a brand that kids loved, that parents would treat their children on a special occasion with a Coke. And they would all sit around together and share a Coke. And it was pitched in a way that would bring families together. And that's still how many people think of Coca-Cola the brand. At Christmas, we get these extravagant adverts that tell wonderful stories. Coca-Cola are a brand that does that. But so many big companies, big Brands tell this story through their Christmas advert where they spend a huge amount of money. But the emotional roller coaster that we go on when we watch those big Christmas ads is huge. And we remember it and we talk about it. We share it with other people. We chat about it around the office and at home. And because it's at the forefront of our minds, we almost certainly buy more products as a result of that. It's storytelling. If you want to convince your boss at work that you deserve a pay rise, or that the performance that happened last month wasn't indicative of the way things are going to move forward, a little bit like the hypothetical Daniel Ricciardo situation that we've been referring to here, maybe you need to start telling a story, upping your game to the very highest level, which is storytelling at its heart, creating and forming a story that will appeal to the emotions of the person that you're telling it to. What does your boss want to hear from you? What kind of things can you say in this story to convince them that you're worthy of the pay rise, that the future's going to be better? Is there an evidence, is there moments in the past that have evidence that you can draw upon? Is there something that you've been through before where it looks like things were going in the wrong direction, but your previous boss trusted in you, allowed you to work through the problems and you came up with a solution that delivered something better in the end? Can you take them on that journey? A journey that they might be able to relate to because throughout that story, if you go back to this previous incident, there will be a moment along that storyline that might be relatable to the one that you're in right now. And if they can make that connection, but your story then goes down a path of bringing you back to a moment of success So a moment that was an improvement, a situation that was a step forward from where you are now. If that person you're telling the story to has connected, has related the moment in your story to the moment you're in right now, where performance might not be quite as good as you hoped. The results might not be where you want them to be. But just look what happened in the story, because in the story, yes, we had some difficult times, but we came out the other side. Maybe you led that process. Maybe you were an intrinsic part of that process. Weave it into the story. Big it up. Big up your moment. What things did you do? What things did you say? How did you convince those around you? How did you work your way out of trouble and get yourself to a point of even greater success? Because if you've brought them on that story and they've gone through the moment we're in now, related it, and yet in the end of that story, they see there's light at the end of the tunnel it can be a thoroughly convincing argument. It can be the same in relationships. When you're building relationships from scratch, when you meet somebody new, you're going to tell them a story about you. You're going to tell them and build a picture that creates a story of who you are. And that story is something that in the very beginning, you have some control over how you tell it. 
You can weave in the elements that you think will suit your audience best. You're going to tell them about the things that you think are going to impress them. Without lying, I must stress, you're going to tell them of the elements that they will see a benefit from. If you go running once a month, but actually for most of the month, you sit in the evenings every day, sitting there watching telly, stuffing your face with takeaway food, you're not, or you're most likely not going to tell them about that part of it. You're going to tell them that you go for a run regularly, that you're active, that you go on these regular runs. You don't have to tell them the frequency at this point, but you tell them you go for regular runs, you go for regular exercise. That's a more appealing story than the fact that for much of the time, you sit on your backside, stuffing your face with takeaway, watching the television. Now, of course, all of these stories can only have an impact up to a point, because no matter how good your story is, in the end, it has to be backed up by your actions. And so if you're uh, uh, telling this story to a person that you meet, if you're telling it to a new potential romantic suitor and you've told them, yeah, I go running regularly and you've left out the bit about sitting there stuffing your face with takeaway, if that's the, the life that you really would want to lead, if you want to be a more active person and that's why you're telling the story, you've got to then back that up because very quickly you're going to get found out if actually you spend 90% of your time sat on a sofa stuffing your face. That's not going to hold water as you get to know each other more. And so the story is part of the convincing movement that you're trying to portray in the beginning. It's part of trying to get someone to buy into your way of thinking, to get them onto your side. But then you need to follow up with results. And in that scenario, if that's the life you really want to lead, and that's why you're telling it to this potential future partner of yours, you then need to get off your backside and start doing the exercise. Start living the life that you're telling people that you want to have. The story is a part of that. It can be a hugely powerful part, but you then have to follow it up with actions. It's the same with our Daniel Ricardo story. Daniel can be as convincing as he likes in these meetings. He can present numbers, statistics. He can tell somebody what he's going to do. He can back it up with the most incredible, powerful story. Take them on this emotional roller coaster of a ride to the point where they back him all the way. They're convinced. Yeah, he's our man. We're going to stick with him all the way. But at the end of the day, if he can't deliver the results that he's promised, even after all of those techniques that he's used to convince them that he's right, if he can't back it up, there's going to come a point where all trust breaks down, where no matter how good your story is, no matter what words you use and how you use them, no matter what you do, if the actions don't back up the story, it means nothing. If you buy into a brand that's told you a wonderful story, and yet, when you buy the product, it doesn't do any of the things that they said it was going to do, you're never going to go and buy that product again. The story loses all meaning. It loses all power. And those actions, those behaviours, are the things that you have at least some control over, a huge amount of control over. In fact, it's one of the only things you do have control over, of what you do, how you live your life, how you behave, what you do when you get up in the morning. Are you going to go for a run? Are you going to sit on the sofa? If you want to sit on the sofa, that's totally fine. But if you actually you want to go for the run, if you want to live a, a healthy, more active lifestyle, sitting on the sofa is not going to back up the story that you're telling yourself, the story of the life you want to lead. To back that story up, you've got to get out and go and do the exercise. 
if you want to sell a product to somebody, you can tell them it's amazing. You can put data and statistics all over the packaging. You can create an advertising story that's mind-blowing. But if the product's rubbish, you're never going to sell very many of them. Of course, there are occasions when you can control the things that you can control. Daniel Ricardo can nail his training. He can spend all manner of hours on the simulator. He can pour through data. He can work with his engineers. He can try everything he can. He can work incredibly hard. And yet there could still be another reason outside of his control that he's not getting the results. It may well be that that McLaren car simply doesn't work well with the way that Daniel Ricardo drives with his technique, with his characteristic and his style of driving may not suit the characteristic and style of the car. And it may be in that situation, the the two simply cannot work. Maybe it's never destined to work as well as anyone hoped. And maybe in that situation, and I talked about this right at the beginning, the question that he needs to ask himself, and this question I think is very much being answered for him at this point, maybe the two need to part ways. Maybe Daniel Ricciardo's skills are not going to work in combination with McLaren's car or engineers, groups of people that work there, with the way they operate and the way Daniel operates, maybe they're not that compatible. That can be the same in relationships. Relationships can break down and no matter how hard anyone works, it may well just be that two people are not meant to be together. And right back at the beginning of this podcast, one of the things I touched on was the two directions you can go on when performance isn't meeting expectation, when relationships start to hit the rocks. You can go down the route that I've talked about. You can try and convince people that things are going to be different. You can use techniques to sell yourself, to sell the product or the service. Or the other option is that maybe it's not meant to be. Maybe you're not meant to work with this person. Maybe you're not meant to work in that company. Maybe you're not meant to employ that person after a job interview. And in those situations, then the other opportunity is to start thinking about going your separate ways. Because parting company and ending a relationship or choosing not to form a relationship can be exactly the right thing to do. There is no right and wrong answer, and this is something that's specific to any given situation, to any given person or group of people. Only you know what the right call to make is, and actually you might only know once you've made it. But going down the route of spending all of this time and energy to convince somebody that things can be different could also be seen as taking time away from going down a different path that might actually suit you better. So these decisions that you have to make way back in the early part when things are not working out are all centered around what's right for you. Is it right that you fight for this and make it work? Or is actually, is it better that you go a different route? Is there a more opportunity by taking a different path? And by not taking that path and fighting for something you might not be 100% convinced of, are you actually holding yourself back from opportunities that might be down the other path that you haven't chosen to go down? There may not even be a right or wrong answer. But once you have a picture in your mind of what story you'd like your life to be, how you'd like the story of your life to play out, only once you've figured that part out, can you start to back up the story with actions and behaviours that make that story come true. 
I'll leave that with you this week. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I'd really appreciate it if you'd like or follow, subscribe to the podcast. Leave me a little note in the Apple Podcast Store. Give me a rating and review. Makes a massive difference, and I would appreciate it massively. So have a wonderful week. I'll be back in seven days' time. And in the meantime, remember this. Do the right things. Do the things right.